Welcome to episode six of the Leaders in Learning podcast series, a product of the Collaborating, Learning, and Adapting team at the United States Agency for International Development, also known as USAID. Starting from a theory that effective learning organizations are more impactful development organizations, Leaders in Learning is a seven-part podcast series that explores promising practices in building learning organizations through interviews with a variety of knowledge management and organizational learning leaders in the international development sector. My name is Stacey Young, and I'm a Senior Learning Advisor in the Office of Learning Evaluation and Research in USA's Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning. I also lead the Collaborating Learning and Adapting team. And I have the good fortune of being able to host this podcast with my colleague and friend, Piers Bocock. Piers is the Chief of Party of USA's Knowledge Management and Learning Contract, also known as LEARN. Hi, Piers. Hi, Stacy. If you listened to previous episodes, then you already know that this series is based on conversations and interviews that Piers and I conducted with 10 thought leaders in knowledge management and learning. Because it would be impossible to include all the wisdom in every episode, each show shares selected audio clips from three to four of the interviews to review and discuss in response to a key question that we've been grappling with. The focus of this episode, our sixth in our Leaders in Learning series, is focused on integration and sustainability of knowledge management and learning efforts, namely, how are organizations integrating intentional learning into their day-to-day work? This is a complex topic and one that a single podcast episode can't possibly do appropriate justice, but hopefully we'll bring in some interesting perspectives during this podcast to add to the large amount of content we have on the subject on usaidlearninglab.org. Today we're going to hear clips from three of our leaders in learning that respond in various ways to three different themes that emerged in our conversations with them related to this topic. They are Karen Mokate, who's the Chief of Knowledge Management at the Inter-American Development Bank, Clive Martlew, who's Lead for Learning and Leadership at DFID, and Allison Evans, who's the Chief Commissioner with the Independent Commission for Aid Impact. You've heard from each of these leaders previously in our series. We'll start with three clips, one from each of our leaders today on this topic of how to integrate learning into day-to-day work. And these three clips focus on the theme of how to make that systematic, intentional, and well-resourced. First, we'll hear from Allison Evans, then Clive Martlew, and then Karen Mokate. And I think for leaders of those departments you need to be restless around the need for learning in a way Um, that it's it isn't ever over but you can absolutely send the right signals so that people you know arrive at at work every day feeling like this is this is the reason I get up in the morning and creating that kind of sense of restlessness around the need to do it. And to be fair, I mean, I've been, you know, doing this job sort of with others, poking around in DFID and other spending departments now for the, the last few years. And that some of that restlessness exists, and it's very promising when you see it. But it isn't everywhere, and it isn't everyone. And sometimes it gets forgotten in the rush and the crisis management and the changing political priorities and so on. It gets squeezed out. It's about how to keep it at the forefront. I think one of the ways that you change culture is to embed behaviours, ways of working into the processes and rules and systems of your organisation. So we have been working quite hard to ensure that um, 
learning and, and uh, the ways that we share knowledge and know-how get embedded into the rules. Our smart rules for program delivery have been completely rewritten to incorporate a whole set of requirements and guidance around how we learn in the program cycle, for example. Uh, the senior responsible owner role um, in DFID, we, we, every program has a senior responsible owner. Um, the requirement to promote and champion learning and design learning into the program is inside the job description of senior responsible owners. My first piece of advice would be to have examples, examples of uh, success, examples that demonstrate the value of investing time in this, but also um, ways that you can you can step in and, and facilitate the process in such a way that it, it jives with their work process and their um, work practices. So, for example, to capture knowledge um, towards the end of a project. If you can step into the, uh, to the process of the, of the report that they have to pr uh, prepare to close the project and include the kind of reflection and the brainstorming uh, about lessons learned in that process, I think you're a lot more likely to succeed. I, I think if you can, instead of having a, a methodology that has its own instances, if you can adopt your methodologies to uh, insert in, in mundane practices, it'll be much more effective. Well, Piers, there's a lot to say about each of these. Um, I think one of the first things that strikes me, of course, as always, is how beautifully our British colleagues use the English language. <laughs> um, uh, but even beyond that, um, what Allison was saying about that restlessness around learning just struck me so uh, profoundly because of the experience that we've had again and again of working with staff to understand and make explicit the learning processes that we're talk about, talking about, but also the value of that and the way that we see them just light up and sort of come alive at the prospect of being able to use organizational learning processes to do better development. You know, she's, she's talking about that passion and we just see that again and again, that, that helping people to make explicit this focus on learning helps to reconnect them with that passion that they have um, because they do want to do good development and they see that um, explicit intentional focus on collaborating, learning, and adapting as a way to remove some of the obstacles between them and that passion. So I, I really liked what she said about that. All three of them, I think, are trying to make the case for um, making explicit the the aspects of learning that we often take for granted you know people often say to us don't they um well this is just how people should work right and we say yes it is sure but as um all three speakers are are uh, getting at there are a lot of things that can crowd that out and so uh, you know to incorporate that um as clive was talking about into um 
what it what how people's responsibilities are defined um or as karen was talking about into you know the mundane everyday practices or as uh, as we say this is how we work um that helps people to really focus on uh those processes that make learning possible that that sustain collaboration um and that that actually make it valued as part of how we operate so that there's more space for it right now i i love the this set of clips because we're we're talking about three different people in three different organizations who are all um highlighting really the 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 keys to sustainability so we're past the point where folks um are saying is uh, learning important to an organization, right? And I think we are um, at a place where people are familiar with learning practices. But how to actually make those approaches sustainable, building them into the work they do, making them, as, as, as we've said time and time again, intentional, systematic and resourced and and Karen talks about that right mm-hmm. don't make learning and knowledge management processes something that you add on to mm-hmm. have them be an approach that you add into existing approaches and have examples ready to go and in fact facilitate that conversation in a learning way right right and then you know Clive talking about embedding mm-hmm. these um approaches and intentions in their smart rules and in the responsibilities of each senior responsible officer. And then, of course, Allison, who, you know, on the surface, she is part of that commission that is charged with oversight and evidence and proof. And she is the one saying, you have to have a restless spirit about this. Mm-hmm. It's never complete. Mm-hmm. That idea that learning is a continuous process mm-hmm. and that we're at a place where it's not yet systematic, but there are pockets of promise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I just found all three really compelling. Um, I wanted to return to what Karen was saying because this is something that we have found a lot in our work Uh, And I think it will resonate for our listeners, which is, you know, what she's saying about um, people want examples and they always ask us for those. Okay, well, this sounds good in concept. How do we actually do it? And the importance of making those examples be about development work, not just about learning practice. So um, instead of saying, well, um, here's how you have an interesting partner meeting on a certain topic, you say, here's how you actually can help knit together all of the learning that's taking place in the field throughout your programs, you bring partners together and you have an interesting <laughs> learning meeting. So so connecting it to the um, development aims and the value that, that the learning practices or, or collaborating or adaptive management actually bring to the development work that we, that we all care about. I, I thought that was really well stated and certainly uh, resonates with what we've learned about how to build capacity and how to build uh, awareness and support for institutional organizational learning. And I think that's exactly right. And you're making me think of a very specific example. And as we've talked about before, it's we can go into 
work with a mission to facilitate something and, and put ideas forward. But when we say, hey, you know what they did in Indonesia when they were trying to develop their strategy? We talk to them. And in fact, don't listen to us. Watch this video. Mm -hmm. yeah. And in the video, they talk about how they were putting together their five-year strategy, had pretty clear ideas about what they thought needed to happen, but they brought together stakeholders. I think it was 10 or 13 different meetings across Indonesia. Yes, it took three months to do this, mm -hmm. but you had uh, transgendered people talking to imams. Mm -hmm. You had this, this practical example of um, a collaborative meeting that in fact yielded a completely different strategic direction and the agency listened to it right and built relationships um, both between USAID and those stakeholders but also among those stakeholders themselves and that's also um, a development benefit that I think that we can um, support because we have that convening power and so that makes me think also about um, when people are concerned about the time or the resources that go into intentional collaborating, learning, and adapting, we need to do a better job of capturing those other benefits that are maybe um, not the thing that we say is the direct focus of the collaboration, in this instance, developing a st strategic plan, but really are very much in line with the development outcomes that, that we're trying to support. And that's what I think, um, that's one of the reasons that people do come alive when, they, when we talk about these kinds of opportunities with them, because they sense and they see and they understand and they feel all of those benefits that come with um, putting, as you say, bringing together people from very different walks of life to talk about the future of their country and then for us to understand how we can support them in achieving that. Exactly. And to tie it back to what Allison was saying about restlessness and then a previous episode when we talked about curiosity, you right. have to have a culture that says, be curious and open to seeing those perhaps um, ancillary benefits. That's right, yeah. And and wasn't it Chris Collison who also was talking about generosity? Absolutely, and Clive. Chris and Clive, yeah. All right, well, there's always so much more that we could say about any of the things that our leaders in learning have shared with us, but let's move on to the next set of clips. These have to do with the role of a supportive culture in organizational learning. And Piers, I want you to listen for what they say about what that enables, but also what else is required. So first we'll hear from Allison Evans, then we'll hear from Karen Mokate, and then from Clive Martin. So I think that permissive culture is very important, but as I hinted as well this morning, I think it. what's curious to me is that that's there, but they still struggle at <laughs> various times to be able to keep that learning loop intact, and they still struggle, and they're I think they would very much admit this themselves, to, to really utilise all that they have available in, in the right way, at the right time, in the right place. So there's an enormous amount of information flowing through DFID. It's almost swamped, actually, in data, evidence, uh, know-how. The question is, how do you get to what you really need to know and who needs to know it and when do they need to know it? And it's that which I'm not sure they've quite cracked. So if I were to do something differently, I think that's exactly what I would do different, different, differently. I would make 
efforts so that the organization, well, I can still do it, but I would have done it earlier in, in, in my time, um, make efforts so that the organization establishes the uh, incentive. We have a piece in our uh, performance evaluation that's called knowledge sharing, but to be honest, it's a, it's a subjective evaluation. The evaluation has a curve, so you know it's restricted by budget for, you know, uh, and so I don't really know that we're getting an honest and objective evaluation of how active a different uh, t a specific team member is in knowledge sharing. Um, I would, if I were to do, were, do it over again, I would push for the knowledge sharing part to be in the section of our performance evaluation that talks about specific targets and tasks, like the consulting um, firms do, you know, and include them in requirements for promotion. And um, again, like the consulting firms do. And um, I think my other um, investment, and we're now trying this, um, and uh, in at the end of the year, I hope to have a lot more to say about this, but. I think we can use recognition also as a huge incentive. Um, you know, that the vice president singles out a project because it has not only you know gone through a process that brought a lot of learning, but also shared that learning, and then she, she or he also you know moves on and, and shares that knowledge. I think is huge for a project team, and you know um, we're trying to do things like that. Um, we've been nudging and guiding and steering our IT colleagues to build um, learning requirements or learning methods into some of the technical solutions, the platforms and so on that we've been um, installing and creating. Um, we've been changing the way we do continuing professional development for our professional carders to embed much more clearly a, a learning mentality rather than a maybe a more academic teaching uh, mentality. So there's a whole range of, of things from being very systematic about the hard systems through to being um, a, a bit more creative and opportunistic around some of the soft stuff that we do. Um, which has allowed us to work on the bigger thing of culture, to capture that, to embed that change in culture in, in the formalities of what we do. So I think what Allison is saying here is that culture is key. She talks about the permissive culture, but there's more to it, um, and that DFID is making really strong advances in the direction of creating that permissive culture, but is struggling under that overwhelming amount of evidence, which I don't know anybody working in international development who doesn't have that problem. Um, and that, to me, implies that straight line back to knowledge management and how we address some of the basic challenges in knowledge management that enable us, as I like to say, to deliver the needle, not the haystack, because I think we're still in many instances delivering the haystack. Right. So that's, so that's Allison. Um, Karen and Clive, I thought, did a really good job of talking about two sides of that incentive piece um, as part of how you 
um, build a supportive culture and the role that a, a supportive culture plays in organizational learning. So um, they're both talking about the formal systems and the formal incentives, what it says in your performance review. For Karen, she was talking about tying that to explicit targets and metrics. Um, but they're also both acknowledging that there's the soft side. And there is a role for recognition and um, uh, appreciating and elevating examples of strong organizational learning, collaboration, adaptive management as a way to strengthen all of those practices. So that's what I heard. What about you? Thanks, Stacy. So you, you asked me to listen to these clips uh, through the filter of what learning culture could actually enable or foster. And the first thing I want to say is this set of clips moves more into the real talk yeah. of, of mm-hmm. the challenges, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, the first set of clips was, was really about um, the intentionality of it and the recognition that we of what needs to be done to make this, these mm-hmm. efforts sustainable. Yeah. Um, but Allison, you know, obviously she said, I don't think we've quite cracked it. And as you said, nobody's, nobody's cracked this information overload. That's and then right. how do you synthesize that down? But people are trying and where we're seeing successes are people who approach it with a learning mindset, right? Yeah, that's a really good point, right? Like starting with not what do we have, but what do we need to know? Exactly. Um, and I thought that, uh, again, the, the incentives piece is part of the puzzle, isn't it? And we've, we've talked about this at, at USAID, um, what an important sea change it was that collaborating, learning, and adapting approaches are not only recommended in the guidance to missions, but there are certain elements of it that are required. Mm-hmm. Having a collaborating, learning, and adapting plan, having um, monitoring and evaluation and learning plans at, at the project and activity level, things like that. Yes, that's important. But I remember conversations that you and I have had where you've said, yeah, but that's not just what we want them to want it. Right? That's right. We do. Yes. <laughs> and that comes back to the culture. So I think I think the a supportive culture enables policies and guidance and rules that have been put in place to be um, complied with, not just for the sake of compliance, but because there is that passion for learning, for doing development better, which is sort of that that restlessness in the previous clip. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, Piers, and it is actually making me hear what Allison said in the first clip um, with fresh ears, if you will, uh, because she was talking about, I thought the term was a little funny when I first heard her use it, um, we've created a permissive culture. And I thought, hmm, permission to learn. That's, um, I wonder why she's putting it that way. But listening to you talk about that, um, it's helping me to articulate something that I don't think I, I have really explicitly articulated for myself before about the difference between, uh, say, a policy requirement that you include CLA uh, in your program cycle processes being a signal about compliance versus that being a signal about you are now permitted to do the learning that you've wanted to do, uh, go forth and build that in, 
um, here's the space that we're providing for it. And, and supporting that by, in Karen's example, a vice president who elevates a good example as a way to create incentives, but also um, more broadly than the individuals involved, create that culture, create that sense of you are now permitted to reconnect with that restlessness for learning and, and build that into how you work. Yeah, and, and, and also, um, with Karen's other example, almost th- that it's written into job descriptions not as something you must do, but giving that space and permission to be open to learning, to um, almost give the cover, protective cover, to collaborate, to ask questions, <laughs> to admit that perhaps you don't know something, but to look for the generosity of somebody else who might have the knowledge. Yeah, I think that's right. And again, it's, you know, it, it it's all a little tricky because there are two sides to this coin. There's the side that says, thou shalt share knowledge. And so then you have people counting up how many, you know, blog posts they've written or how many times they've posted on online forums or whatever. And that doesn't at all get to substance or Um, relevance or utility or any of that. It really is the culture piece that wraps around it that turns that requirement into permission, that that turns it from yet another box to check to, oh, here's a way that an obstacle has been removed. Right. And then you're making me think of Clive's comment about um, talking to the IT folks about when you're building those knowledge management platforms and sort of getting to the challenge that Allison had identified, build in uh, the capacity to re- that recognizes that people learn differently. Not everybody just wants to download the document. Not everybody just wants to be graded on how many documents you shared. Some people may want to have that virtual space for conversation, for questions, for, um, for different kinds of sharing. That's right. Yeah, getting beyond the uh, one-size-fits-all widget-making. Yeah, good. So, Piers, our last set of clips gets at practical processes and tools. So now we're really getting to the nitty-gritty of how you build organizational learning, organizational development, knowledge management into your day-to-day work. So first we'll hear from Karen, and then Clive, and then we'll end with Allison. chunk it out to the last eight years since the uh, IDB went through a major uh, reorganization. And in fact, one of the objectives of the reorganization was to position knowledge better within the organization. And um, so we reorganized by consolidating our sector knowledge into departments, considering um, our regional... uh, in the past, we were organized more regionally. So we had health experts in different silos. We had education experts in different silos. And we brought them together. But then we also tried to recognize that country knowledge is also an asset that we really had to develop and tried to organize groups that would be focusing on country knowledge as well. With that reallocation, we also had a um, very significant increase in the allocation of resources both for knowledge creation and for staff learning. Um, And over time then, since then, there's been a huge focus on improving the dissemination of the content that the bank produces, of um, questioning value of different um, 
means that we try to share knowledge and you know, ask basic questions of, are we doing it the right way? Um, questioning academic production versus production that is you know, reaching out to policymakers and practitioners. And, um, and then um, I think we also see it just in the everyday work of the bank and how now you can see a lot more, um, again, I'm going to use the word intentional, intentional attempts to share knowledge. So we have much better um, mentoring programs. We ha we're experimenting with a reverse mentoring program. Um, and uh, we're seeing knowledge sharing done in, in ways that we hadn't in the past. So. Reverse mentorship is meant to take a talent that is young, new to the organization, and match it with a person that is in a senior position, maybe um, a long time at the organization, and allow a specific skill set or interest area to be shared in a way that is driven by the talents and interests of the more junior member. So, um, but of course, triggered also because the senior member is you know, interested in knowing about that. So for example, I, I did one of the pilots in reverse mentoring and I worked with a young uh, woman who was working in machine learning and um, some pretty sophisticated uh, data management um, techniques and we were talking about how that could improve uh, knowledge management in general. The tool um, is, a, well, the, the aim of the tool, or the aims of the tool, are to educate, first of all, the, uh, a broad range of folk in, in, in DFID. Uh, it's there to try and engage them, to, to pique their interest and um, get them um, talking about what it means to be a learning team, a learning organisation and so on. It's there to help them think about what they're doing well um, and the areas that they could improve. Um, it's also intended to encourage teams to share um, their good practices with one another and to ask for help um, in those areas where they think they, they can improve. So that's the intention. Uh, the way we use it probably is worth starting with um, the structure of the model. The model is structured around um, three themes. Um, we're working on the culture and leadership of our organisation, we're working on our skills and capabilities and we're working on the systems and processes that we have for organizational learning and knowledge flow. Um, within each of those three themes, we have three um, enablers um, that support the, the, the three thing, themes. So, for example, in, in culture and leadership, we want people to see learning as a strategic investment. We want them to involve their stakeholders in their learning efforts. And we want leaders to role model a whole set of behaviours um, that will build confidence and um, encourage others to demonstrate learning behaviours. Um, so across those three themes, we have nine uh, factors altogether. And what we're trying to do 
is to encourage teams to initially assess themselves, well to understand the model and then assess themselves uh, against that model using a red, amber, green rating structure. The point of doing that is really to encourage a dialogue or discussion in the team, the department, the country office. Um, and what we found in doing it is, of course, that people tell each other things that they didn't know. Oh, are we doing that? We didn't know that. Um, and they have a discussion then about uh, what their um, strengths and needs are in improving in organisational learning. So uh, it's, it, it's a non-threatening, um, um, quite engaging way, we think, um, to get people talking about um, what they're doing and how they can improve. We expect each team to then develop an improvement plan with a small number of very practical, doable activities which they can implement in the aftermath of the assessment process. I mean, I, I suppose it's a cliche and it's one that for anyone working in and around issues of information management, knowledge, you know, just management, it, it would feel a horrible cliche, but learning is a process, not an event in a way, that you, you can't just do learning in increments. It's got to be part of everything about the way you you know you you design your business processes and the way you support your staff and the way you um, set a climate of doing better so it's a process not an event create safe spaces to be able to talk about things that don't work um, you know it I think it's the noose around any organization if it cannot actually acknowledge to itself at least if not to anyone else that this is tough business and yes not everything works but there's a huge amount to be learned from that and to be taken forward as a result of learning from that. I know that um, it must be music to your ears as it is to mine to hear Karen talk about a significant increase in resources dedicated to knowledge and learning at the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, but beyond that, I love her example of reverse mentorship. I think that's just such a wonderful way to look at how you um, transfer knowledge, how you grow capability within or an organization, and also how you strengthen relationships and uh, strengthen a culture of learning. Um, Clive's tool, you know, we've talked a lot about this, how interesting it is, how close that what good looks like tool is to our own um, CLA maturity tool and the whole process that wraps around it, that it's an assessment process, that it's about the conversation, that it has a peer assist function that can be built into it in a way where you're exchanging ideas about you know what's already working well as well as um, the action planning piece of it. Um, and then of course, Allison bringing us back to that ever-present need to tolerate risk, to tolerate failure, to learn from failure. And what strikes me about all three of these is that these are all examples of people talking to each other. Right. Yeah. 
No, that's so true. Um, and we we talk about learning, and I think the default, and we've seen this in a number of organizations, is the the default is to say learning is about training or courses or things like that, where it's often one way delivery. Let me, how can I take in? How can I learn more? But the collective process of sharing and asking and comparing as that dynamic learning function, that that catalyst, um, that's a very that's a that's a very interesting observation. You know, I think what struck me about all three of these is that they're talking about process and the, and the value of process and specific practices. Mm-hmm. But but as you noted, um, they're the result of those is a stronger culture. So Allison talking about creating a safe space where we can learn from those things that don't always work. Mm-hmm. Um, or as uh, our colleague Tony, and he'll talk about this in the, in the next episode, uh-huh. um, talks about learning from what didn't quite work. Right. <laughs> so we're not necessarily <laughs> saying for those who don't want to just sort of highlight failure, um, those things that didn't quite work. But creating a safe space for that, I think, is exactly right. And, and Clive, yes, he's talking about a tool. But as he says, the tool, yes, okay, we want an action plan out of it. But it's a conversation starter. Right. And it's a way to uncover what we didn't know, perhaps, mm-hmm. while um, acknowledging that it's okay to have those conversations. And that goes to culture as well. Yeah. I think this is, in a way, a sort of the culmination of decades of um, trying to tease out explicit knowledge from tacit knowledge. And, and what we keep coming back to is how we entwine the two in conversation. Yeah. But you were going to say something else. Oh, I was just going to say um, with Karen, what I loved about that is the Inter-American Development Bank is, um, like a number of multilaterals, has a way of doing things. And so this idea that first they, they really went back to basics yeah. and said, is the way that we say we are sharing knowledge or the way that we are learning actually working? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big learning question. Yes. And then to flip this, this idea on its head of that we, we see at multilaterals where there is an expert who has been an expert forever and we should all learn from her or him, to, hey, maybe there are opportunities for cross-learning where younger folks might know some things that more senior and experienced professionals might be interested in, and at the same time, recognizing the generosity of the time of the senior folks, again, creating a more learning culture. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was listening to that, and I was thinking, Maybe Amy would do a reverse mentorship with us and teach us how to do our own podcasts. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> would you do that, Amy? I'm not she's smiling. <laughs> Amy she's... says she's not mic'd right now, but she's giving us a thumbs up. So <laughs> I think we're good on that. Um, but again, I mean, I think that all of these are ways of, of sort of getting to that that culture issue that how do we make it something that is just part and parcel of our work and it's not automatic but these three clips in particular are talking about um, intentional approaches that if modeled as Clive likes to talk about from leaders have the potential to create a culture that is supportive of learning and therefore leads to potential sustainability.
Right. Yes. Yes. And as we were saying before, that culture then supporting the processes and, and helping to make sure that those processes actually achieve their intended aim instead of becoming, you know, yet another burdensome thing to do on a long list of, of things to do. Always so much to do. But unfortunately, we can't do any more today because we're out of time. So before we go, I want to take this opportunity to thank you, peers, and thank our contributing thought leaders for today's episode, Karen Mokate, Clive Martlew, and Allison Evans. And also to thank Amy Leo, our intrepid podcast producer, and the Office of Learning Evaluation and Research in USA's Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning, which helped resource this series. Until next time, thank you for joining us on the Leaders in Learning podcast. The USAID Learning Lab podcast is a production of USAID Learn, implemented by DEXIS Consulting Group and its partner, RTI International, on behalf of USAID's Office of Learning Evaluation and Research in the Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning. The opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government. Our music is by Poddington Baird.